Thanks to our listeners, Issues Etc. has operated independently and in the black for 15 consecutive years. Please help us cover our expenses again this year by making a year-end financial gift. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, and a new recording of 15 Christmas and Epiphany hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. Thanks for your support at the end of 2023. There's no doubt about it, at the center of what we call the worship wars stands the issue of music. Is some music better than others? Is some more suited to the message of the gospel? What is the role of church music, really? Not only in worship, but every other way we find church music in our Christian lives. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. On this Thursday, November the 30th, we're going to talk about church music. Philip Magnus joins us. He's cantor at Village Lutheran Church in St. Louis, missionary to West and Central Africa for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and author of the new book, Church Music for the Care of Souls. Philip, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. You say that the primary characteristic of Christian music is the sound of an assembly singing the praises of God. What do you mean by that? Well, the song of the church is about singing the word of God and its voices that carry the word. Instruments can evoke the word. Uh, mine works by association. So if I play directly a, a hymn tune that you know or a psalm refrain, then that can aid in your meditation. And certainly there is an accompanying benefit of David soothing Saul in the sense of maybe creating a, an atmosphere to set up the song of the church, but uh, the primary characteristic is the people singing the Word of God. How is the Lord's song different from mortals or mere human song? Well, because singing the Lord's song is singing the words that God himself has given us or singing hymn texts that preach the Word, it is of an inherently different nature. Like preaching, it's a gift that comes from the Spirit. The Word of God, the Spirit carries, is along with the Word of God. And so it's a gift from above. It's not our own invention. We're called to participate in, in God's creative work as we proclaim the Word of God, as we adorn the Word of God with music and holy sounds that magnify the Word of God, such as that Mary sings, my soul magnifies the Lord. But the Lord's song intrinsically conveys those things that the Word itself delivers, truth, life, salvation. What's the relationship between faith and singing? Well, uh, as we read in Hebrews, the Word of God is living and active, and so our faith is living and active. Uh, Luther talks about that. Oh, what a living and gracious and active uh, thing this faith is. Well, faith desires to do good works, and I contend that uh, faith sings. Faith desires to sing the Lord's song. In fact, uh, we get to Psalm 40. We read, uh, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And then we have a promise attached to it. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So singing not only is something that faith wants to do, but singing the Lord's song creates faith in others. CFW Walther used to 
like to tell the pastors that their job is to preach faith into each other's hearts. I believe that the Christian assembly is called to sing faith into each other's hearts. How is the Lord's song at odds with the songs of the world? Well, this kind of circles us back to how the Lord's song is different from human songs, doesn't it, Todd? There certainly is God-pleasing secular music. I don't want to say that. And certainly in a, in a neutral sense, David, when he plays his uh, harp for Saul, we don't know how much he was evoking familiar psalm tunes and how much it was music that can, as we say, there's something called the doctrine of the affections that, that Bach and the Baroque composers used to follow. The idea of music of certain types can reflect certain emotions and, uh, and bring about certain affects or feelings. It's, it's drawn from the music philosophy of the ancient Greeks. And I think there's some validity to that, and we could, there's treaties written on that. And uh, so I don't want to totally discount what we call absolute music or neutral music. And so there's, there's God-pleasing secular music and not just classical music. There's a role for, for folk music as we celebrate first article gifts and, and carry about our, our Christian life in the world. So here with this question, I'd like to separate when you say the songs, the song of the Lord versus the song of the world. I really want to narrow down the contrast between the Lord's song and the songs of our enemies, the devil in yea, the world, and our sinful nature. And that's a little different than, say, the sanctified music of a farmer singing as he goes about his daily work, something that might be a secular folk song. So, you know, music is a powerful force, and it can be used for evil as well as good. So here we want to make a sharp contrast between the songs that come from the flesh, songs that catechize us wrongly, which so much popular music does, songs that have a... um, just a detrimonious effect on us. And we do well because the mind works by association to be careful with musical constructs that are used and the mind associates with the songs of the flesh. So there is a sharp contrast. I tell an interesting story in my book that sort of illustrates this if we want to dig down a little bit deeper. There's Christian music in almost every genre, every type of music. And I have noticed over the years that the Christian forms tend to develop a certain distinct sound from the worldly forms. I experienced this in a taxi cab, for example, in Pointe-Noire, Congo, when I was hearing some music in Lingala, and it was, sounded very much like Afropop, but it wasn't quite, and, I, and it was in the local language. I speak French. I don't speak the tribal languages. So I asked the taxi man, I said, is this Christian music? Because I was sensing that it was. And he goes, oh, yes. And so I made this great friend. And it was characterized primarily by the voices rather than the instruments, even though there was instruments and a nice African beat to it. And there was a certain harmonic element. And it just kind of spoke to me. I think, I think these are Christians that are singing. So there is a difference. Sometimes it is uh, something that's hard to describe. And perhaps that goes into the art and craft of music. But there is definitely a contrast. And ultimately, to go back to your, your second question, not just how is it different, but how is it at odds? When we are singing the Lord's song, we are being built up in faith. When we are listening to music that is profane or allow our children to listen to music that is profane, we're doing spiritual harm, exposing ourselves to spiritual harm. 
What has happened when the church has allowed style to prevail over substance in its music? Well, this is something that happens in, in every era. Uh, we ha- you know, we've had the famous worship wars, and not just in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, but in so many denominations, probably every denomination. And when you look in church history, worship, there's often stylistic debates over this, and even the topic of do we allow instruments or not. So there's nothing new under the sun. And I think it's important when we have these kind of discussions that we give thanks first that people care enough to offer a critique or a concern, but then let's let's get into the purpose of what we are doing here. Are we focusing on a certain style to elevate it as a, a type of holy sound? And I think there's, there's a real danger there because eschatologically, all human music stands under the judgment. No eye has seen nor ear has heard what God has prepared for us. The, the song that we have written, that John writes of in Revelation, we can sing the text, and we do. Power, riches, glory, honored faith. You know, in Revelation, the Dignus S. Canticle, this is the feast that so many Lutherans love singing. We can sing those words, and we can look forward to the new heaven and the new earth, but we don't know exactly what that music sounds like. Vatican I elevated Gregorian chant. There are some people that uh, think they can only worship with a praise band that's playing the most modern music, or there are people that elevate classical sacred music and start worshiping music at the altar of God rather than worshiping uh, God through music. So there are risks in every generation. One illustration I like to give is I had a dear Christian brother who goes to a very faithful church. I pointed out to him that even his very faithful church was, or at least some people in that church that day were getting a little carried away the choir sang, Gunos, send out thy light. And it was just this, oh, it's so wonderful, you know, how our worship is. It's a line from Psalm 47. I'm not opposed to it as a piece of music and, and certainly in the concert hall. But as part of church, I kind of smile and I'm like, really? You're going to have three or four minutes of people singing the same text over and over again? And how is that different from a praise chorus with uh, or what they, some people that like to critique some of the, the, the contemporary worship and they'll say the 711 songs, is it somehow good because we had organ and violins? There's a certain pitfall that we can all fall into. This is not to say that repetition in worship is bad. We have repetition in the liturgy, repetition in the Kyrie. And Jesus doesn't uh, condemn the repetitions. He condemns the vain repetitions. And I think the vanity is in thinking that somehow we've got the holy sound, that our music is somehow uniquely holy. What is uniquely holy is the word that God has given us to sing. What's the pitfall of using popular music as the foundation of worship? Well, that which is most easily loved, Todd, is most quickly loathed. Now, there is some purpose in using popular constructs, uh, things that are people that are familiar with or easy. I think used carefully and winsomely, there's a role for instant music. An illustration I like to use, if I'm composing a, a psalm antiphon, a little refrain, a text that's going to be sung once every year to three years, and maybe we'll sing a different refrain out of a different verse next time we do the psalm. So the people need to pick it up easily and quickly. So I tend to draw on popular idioms and chord progressions so that the people in this modern culture can quickly learn the melody and then sing the refrain after they hear the cantor or the choir or the liturgist sing it. So there's a role for that. But the danger is is that anything that's that quickly learned and liked 
is most soon disliked. Gene Veith talks about like a continuum of folk, art, and pop with folk in the middle. And folk is in that sweet spot, not necessarily folk music like, you know, nannies and 60s guitars, but I mean folk music is music of the people. Christmas carols are loved because they are our common folk Christmas songs. I contend that our Easter hymnody is common folk music of our Lutheran church, or if you're in another denomination of your church. These hymns are our common folk music, and they are more complex than a pop song, but they're not so complex that they are difficult for people to sing. Then when you get into art music, it takes a certain amount of musicianship and craft. I think there's a place for art music in the church as well. We have choirs that rehearse and they can do something special in the sense of a proclamation of God's word and offer something that enhances and elevates worship. But the the core should be the folk music. And when you start basing the song of the church just on pop music, you wind up with excessive repetitions, you wind up with the inability to properly serve the text, and you take away the whole folk heritage that has sustained the church, an astonishingly rich heritage, as Norman Nagel wrote in his introduction to Lutheran worship. You take that away from the people. And so it's wrought with danger, and so we should be very careful with how we use uh, popular music constructs in the divine service. Philip Agnes is our guest. We're talking about church music and we'll discuss personal preference in church music next. week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue our study of the book of beginnings, Genesis, with descendants of Ham, descendants of Shem, Tower of Babel, more on Shem, and Terah's family. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Our children are always a blessing to us, but not only are we blessed by them, but we have opportunities to bless them as well. Pastor Christopher Nuttleman, in the December issue of The Lutheran Witness, takes up the topic of blessing your children, how to bless them in your home with the Word of God and prayer. To learn more, pick up your copy of the December issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit cph.org witness to subscribe or visit witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Real Reformation Radio, you're listening to Issues Etc. The Evangelical Lutheran Church holds that it is God who raises up men to serve His Holy Bride through His office of the Holy Ministry. At Concordia University, Chicago, we prepare men to take the first step on the path by which God leads them to His pastoral office. Are you ready to take the step? I'm Dr. James Ambrose Lee, Chair of the Division of Theology at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more about the pre-seminary program at CUC by visiting cuchicago.edu, cuchicago.edu. Memoria Press is a worldwide leader in the publishing of classical Christian education. We have everything you need for students in kindergarten through 12th grade, and our materials can be used in any classroom setting to suit your needs. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 to save $5 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time.
Welcome back. We're talking about church music. Phil Magnus is our guest. He's author of the new book, Church Music for the Care of Souls. Philip, what caution would you offer regarding personal preferences in church music? Well, I go back to that line that I actually got from Michael Jonkus, of all people, uh, the writer who wrote On Eagle's Wings, a uh, Catholic liturgical musician. He said at a lecture that I attended back in the 90s at Concordia Chicago, all human music stands under the judgment. So this, this goes also to, uh, you know, especially to worship leaders, to cantors, choir directors, pastors, people who make selections, pastors choosing hymns. It is really easy if you like something to go like, ooh, ooh, my whole congregation has to sing this now. And so I have a rule which I try to follow, and I recommend that all pastors and church music leaders follow, which is if you are moved to sing something new that you've discovered that you like, ask yourself, what are you not going to sing because you're going to do this new piece? And sometimes you can weigh the two and say, you know what, this new piece is worth doing. But other times, if you're sensitive to your assembly, what they know, what they expect, how they would interact with the music and how they would have interacted with the music that you're not going to sing, you weigh those in the balance. And oftentimes you come away with, you know what, we still need to do what we would have done and maybe we'll do this new piece some other time. Or you'll decide, you know what, this piece of music is something I can enjoy or share with a friend but I really shouldn't abuse the authority I have as pastor or cantor and foist this on the people just because I like it. Why do we need to distinguish between what life in Christ is and our experience of living in the Word of God? Oh, this is such an important question, Todd. I'm glad you asked it. I'm going to get into the weeds a little bit. Clement Preuss had an excellent article years ago on this, and I know you guys uh, at the seminary study this. I think more of the lay people uh, need to understand this difference. Uh, the, the fides que, creditur, the faith by which we are saved, that's objective, that's the faith, the faith delivered to the saints. And then there's fides qua, that is our experience of living faith, saving faith. And there's a difference between singing the faith objectively and singing our experience. Now, obviously, if we're singing it and we're experiencing it, you know, a certain testimony is intrinsic to that. It's a part of that. You can't separate it. But, but here's the deal. If I'm singing about what Christ has done, then I'm singing about what he has done for everybody. If I sing about my own experience that's subjective, someone might be inspired or they might think, well, it's really great that God did that for him, but is this for me? There's that hymn, oh, that I had a thousand voices, and it ends with, to all, wherever I may be, what great things God has done for me. And I think that's the key, is we have to sing about what great things Christ has done. And yes, we make the testimony, he's done it for me, but we have to make sure that the emphasis on what Christ has done, and that it is for all who hear, which is also in that hymn, that all whoever it may be, may hear about these good works that Christ has done. Uh, and so when we sing of Christ, we sing faith into each other's hearts because we make that good testimony. When we sing subjectively, we can nurture our faith and we can inspire others and we can more deeply identify with that. So we don't want to necessarily exclude that, but the emphasis needs to be on the objective, on the one who has created our faith the author and perfecter of our faith. 
Some of the great hymns really make this balance well. This is why the hymns of Gerhardt are so wonderful, because they're rooted in Christ, and yet they allow the singer also to put his or her subjective experience into it. For example, as we enter into Advent Tide, I hope your congregations out there sing, O Lord, how shall I meet you? So it's very personal, but then yet when you go through the, the stanzas of the hymn, the six stanzas, it sings about the work of Jesus. Why is the pipe organ, you say, the king of instruments? Well, that's what it's commonly called. So the question, why is that the king of instruments? Well, there are four elements toward leading people in song. And the organ is the king in that one person is able to do all four things at once. A really good pianist can also pull that off. Much more difficult to do on piano a lot easier to do on organ. Let me explain. There, there are four elements that one needs to have. And if you have a, a contemporary liturgical ensemble or, or some kind of instrumental cohort, you're going to want to cover all four of these bases in some way. So the number one is the lyric element, right? Melody. Words carry the Lord's song. So that's primary as we started with our discussion. And that lyric element is easily connected on the organ because it's wind moving through pipe like wind moves through the human voice. So that's where it has an advantage over piano or guitar that's sustained. Also, the organ has couplers or what kind of ranks. So if I play a, a note on and the melody on the organ, I can add a four or two foot, called a four or two foot stop. That means it sounds an octave higher or two octaves higher. And that allows the people to hear it more clearly because that sings above them and provides that lyric melodic leadership. If you do this in a consort, it might be, say, let's have the flute play an octave higher than the assembly to provide that leadership, or a violin play an octave higher. But I can do that automatically in the organ just by pulling a stop. So that's number one. That's the primary thing. But then we want to have just more than the melody. Well, the foundation, what gives us rhythm, and rhythm unites the people. The foundational rhythm is in the bass. As any pop musician or jazz musician will tell you, the bass players, the rhythm keeper is the rhythm keeper for the band, not the drummer. And that foundation comes in the pedals. A good pianist using a sustained pedal can grab lots of low notes on the bottom and go back and forth. An ensemble might have a bass guitar or a cellist, but an organist doesn't need an extra person or superhuman skills. You just push those pedals down with your feet and they're there. Then there's an envelope that you send the sound in. If you have just the bass and just the melody, it's a little stark for leading people. Now, you can do that with just those two elements, and we often do that in Africa with, with less. But what really helps people with the organ, then, is the envelope of sounds in the middle that play the harmony, and that's at the pitch levels of where men and women are actually singing. That foundation is below them. That melody is above them. That envelope is where they're singing, and that provides warmth and color, and then encourages them to sing. Remember, in the divine service, the majority of people coming in, especially today, are non-singers coming in without rehearsal. And the last thing most people want to do is like be heard singing over the congregation. <laughs> so if all their people aren't singing around them, so the organist can provide that envelope, that security blanket, that warmth. And it also provides different colors of warmth to help emphasize the text. So now you're getting into uh, actually some, some ministry 
where, for example, when I have a gospel comfort text, I will use more strings. If I'm getting a rebuke of the people, I might bring in some, some gnarly oboes or bassoons. And I can use that envelope to create different colors as well as that harmonic warmth that encourages people to sing. And then finally, and this is the difference between good liturgical organ playing and what some people joke is funeral parlor playing. A good church organist articulates well. You create accents by having space before notes. Uh, you have rhythmic releases of notes. And so you play rhythmically. And that connects that foundation because rhythm, rhythm unites. Uh, that's how you keep large groups of people together. So there you go. Those are the four elements, uh, the, the, the melody, foundation, envelope, rhythm. And the organist can do that with just one musician on the bench. We will talk about the role of the church cantor as we discuss church music with Philip Magnus, author of the new book, Church Music for the Care of Souls, after the break. We love our on-demand listeners. You're listening to Issues Etc. This is Pastor Tyler Arnold of Village Lutheran Church in Ladue, Missouri. The Saints at Village are proud to be an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. If you are in the St. Louis area, join us for the Divine Service at 8.15 or 10.45 a.m., Bible study and Sunday school at 9.30 a.m., as we receive Christ's promise of salvation and forgiveness through word and sacrament. You can find us at villagelutheranchurch.org. Village Lutheran in St. Louis welcomes you. Welcome back to Issues Etc. We're talking about church music with Philip Magnus, cantor at Village Lutheran Church in St. Louis, missionary to West and Central Africa. For the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate author of the new book, Church Music for the Care of Souls, Luther Academy recently hosted an intensive course in Antigua, Guatemala, on the pastoral letters and the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Luther Academy serves Lutheran pastors to the ends of the earth. Find out more about this confessional Lutheran worldwide mission outreach at lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. Phil, what is the role of the church cantor? People ask that a lot. It's important to, as Lutherans, that we teach each other, remind each other, or maybe teach others outside our faith that Lutherans use the word cantor differently than Roman Catholics or Jews. Martin Luther gave the title cantor to Johann Walter, the first cantor of the Lutheran Church, when he realized he needed some musical help, even though Luther was a very capable musician himself. He was a tenor, he was a lutenist, composer. And he called Walter in and gave him the title Cantor. I can't translate the German directly, but to paraphrase it, he, he said the Old Testament Cantor chanted psalms and prayers on behalf of the people. The evangelical Cantor will equip the people to sing the Lord's song. And so that's what the, the Lutheran Cantor does. And so as an equipper, the Lutheran Cantor composes and arranges music doesn't just direct music. We compose and arrange to fit the talents in our parish, in our situation, to match the context of where we are, the musical language of the people to whom we're ministering. We're leaders of the whole congregation, not just the choir. 
We teach the people, particularly the young with the children's choirs, to sing the Lord's song. So we're equippers, we're composers, we're catalysts. And then as chief musician, our role is to summon the Lord's song, uh, to evoke it with instrumental music as we, we teach the Lord's song, and then to nurture the Lord's song in our ongoing teaching and leadership of the congregation. How does good church music unite across generations? Well, the culture of the church is cross-cultural, and so it's also cross-generational. Good church music is a noble thing of character that we do well to cultivate and preserve. It stands the test of time. We don't know what new church musics are going to be around in 50 or 100 years. After something's been sung for 10 years or so, we start to get an idea. But we have the same red blood cells, the same gray matters between our ears. And as I like to tell my choir, they're really no different. In fact, they're probably better educated and better nourished health-wise and vocally than, say, an English uh, choir that William Byrd might have had or the choirs of of previous generations. And whether it's the choir or the congregation, the same people that were moved 30, 50, 100, 200, 250 years ago by an excellent text that sings of Christ matched to a sturdy tune that enables people to sing well together, that is going to be the same across all generations. One of my favorite memories as a Cantor was in my younger years. We had just finished for Advent Vespers singing Wake Awake for Night is Flying as part of the service. And one of the children's choristers who was in the service, she and a friend went down the stairs all gleeful after the service. And this middle school girl exclaimed to a friend, I'm going to have that at my wedding. That's the best hymn ever. And sure enough, a few years later, (laughs) that was the processional hymn at her wedding. You say, if the service sings Christ, watch out, many will loudly object. How and why? Yeah, that's a uh, rather shocking statement. And out of context, I'm like, did I say that? Yeah, I did say that. And it's because I've learned it through experience. And I write about this in my book, Be Prepared, is one of my final chapters. Because this is spiritual warfare. When you, when you sing the Lord's song, the devil's going to put a target on your back. The devil isn't too occupied with those who are preoccupied with the song of the word. But let me back up here. Why did I write that particular sentence, uh, if the service sings Christ, watch out, many will loudly object. Here's the deal. I have learned that you can teach, a pastor can teach Lutheranism, teach good confessional Christianity, biblical Christianity, And a certain number will go to Bible class and learn. But the majority in most congregations won't. Then the pastor can say, this was kind of the argument of David Lukey's evangelical-style Lutheran substance, well, as long as we preach really good doctrine, we can have other styles, but we'll have our Lutheran substance, and that'll be sufficient. But guess what? The people often tune the pastor out. And if they really don't buy into what our church believes, teaches, confesses, if they don't buy into that, then they just filter those things out. I remember one person at a previous congregation making the comment, well, you just always try to get something good out of the sermon. You know, it was was one of these people like, well, their pastor goes about baptism again. So you can have people in your congregation that don't buy into 
what your church believes and teaches and confesses. I write the Church Music Guide to the Broader Church. It's published by Lexham Press. And so if you're a listener here on the program and you belong to the church body, you can substitute your confession for this. I summarize this as, as teaching Christ because I believe in the fides quae, singing of Christ, singing the faith, the faith delivered to the saints. And so you can insert that qualifier in there. But here's the, here's the deal. You can preach Lutheranism, and I'm talking to my fellow Lutherans. You can preach Lutheranism, and people will tune out what they don't want to hear. Their pastor goes on on baptism again. Oh, there he's talking about the Lord's Supper. Oh, theology of the cross again. Well, he's going to have a good story in there, or he's going to have a good life application tip. This particularly happens in congregations I've been at with uh, contemporary worship, where a lot of people are coming for the music, the community, the day school, experiences in my life. And then in the class, there was one congregation that I was at where a gentleman who was on the personnel committee took me out to lunch. He let me know that he only really became a Lutheran after being in the church for over a decade because he became an elder and pastor, led the elders through the Augsburg Confession and parts of the Book of Concord. He said, before that, you would have told me I was a Lutheran, but actually I was a Baptist and I married into the Lutheran church. And yeah, he was preaching this stuff, but I just really wasn't listening. And I just thought, well, we're Christians who get to drink. So you can preach Lutheranism and people can tune you out. You can teach Lutheranism, and some will come, like this dear brother who took me out to lunch and had a good conversation with me. But when you start to sing your faith, when you fill the service with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, there's nowhere the people can hide. And this is when the loud objections can come. More than once in my career, I have been charged with taking a service and being given the responsibility of recovering it from a detour. And in all cases, it was a stylistic detour. There, was, there were choices that had been made before my arrival that we have a preferred soundtrack that we think is going to attract people to the faith. So for evangelical purposes, we are going to sing this soundtrack. And then the congregation discovers, you know, it's not working or we need to do it better, need to do it differently. And then I've been brought in. And so I say these things from experience And I want to add this to experience, lest people think that I'm just bashing anybody. One congregation that I went to, I was hesitant to go when I was given this charge. And I only accepted the call after I told them, well, you're going to lose a certain amount of people over this. And and the call committee stood up in front of me. They stood up man to man. And they said, well, we, we thought about this. We want to tell you this. And they looked at each other and they said, we're prepared to lose. And I was like, wow, they're actually prepared to lose a good, good number of families over this. And it was for the sake of the larger congregation, the sake of ending division, the sake of moving forward. So I'm like, okay, I'll take this on. But I'm telling the story because what happened is there were people they thought they would lose from the so-called contemporary modern worship service who loved singing psalms, who liked some of the Lutheran hymns that I brought, who thought it was great that the organ was back. And we kept the liturgical ensemble. I didn't totally get rid of the band. But it wasn't blended worship, this kind of obnoxious little bit of this, little bit of that. It was over time we taught and we had a thoroughly Lutheran divine service, the kind of service that our grandfathers, or go back to Chemnitz, and Luther himself would have recognized as an evangelical Lutheran service. And there were people they thought they would leave, and they didn't. 
Oh, sure. Some of the people, you know, left right away. You know, the hand raisers that were there just wanting the latest uh, song from Christian pop radio. They were out rather quickly. But there were a lot of others that, that stayed and really actually liked some of the stuff that we were doing. Conversely, though, we did the same thing with the traditional worship. We moved the traditional service away from just singing people's favorite 30 or 40 hymns from from the Anglo-Methodist tradition, plus maybe Beautiful Savior and Now Thank We All Our God, a couple of Lutheran faves, uh, Mighty Fortress on Reformation. But we actually began to teach Gerhardt hymns, and we introduced psalmody into the traditional service. And so we enriched both the quote-unquote traditional service and the contemporary service. We stopped putting labels on the two services, and the elders sent out a wonderful letter. It just explained to the congregation, we're going to have Lutheran worship. As a sainted Kurt Marquardt used to say, don't do high church, don't do low church, just do Lutheran church. And so that's what we did. And sure enough, some people at the traditional service left because they weren't getting their preferred soundtrack and their favorite 30 or 40 hymns that they thought were uniquely holy and had to be sung all the time. So both sides had the same problem of elevating a certain musical style or a certain set of songs, a certain soundtrack over the purpose of singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs so that we would sing faith into each other's hearts. And so that's why I say watch out. When you go about the business of using the art of music for the care of souls, you can expect some turbulence. But it's turbulence that is worth experiencing because there will be great spiritual growth. Because you don't want people tuning out of the sermon, and you don't want people avoiding Bible class. And in fact, when you start having services that are enriching and nourishing in this way, I believe you will see more attentiveness to the sermon because people will see how everything connects and holds together. And I think you'll see an increase in Bible study because people will be more nourished in the faith. Because once you get more nourishing substance, you develop a taste for more nourishing substance. And so it's sort of like a diet, as I think it was John Vicker at Vespers at the seminary last night, may have been at chapel yesterday at the Sim, but making the analogy between you're eating food and you eat nourishing food on a regular basis, but you're not eating all the time because you do other things. Well, the same thing. We, we inwardly digest God's word. And when you get on a good, healthy diet of God's word, you desire to be in worship regularly and you desire to study God's word and you are more attentive to the preaching. So it's, it all holds together. Philip Agnes is cantor at Village Lutheran Church in St. Louis. He's missionary to West and Central Africa for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and author of the new book, Church Music for the Care of Souls. You can purchase this book on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org or by calling Lexham Press, 1-800-875-6467, 1-800-875-6467, and request Church Music for the Care of Souls by Cantor Philip Magnus. Phil, thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Todd. I'd just like to add that today is a St. Andrew Day. I don't know when this is going to be broadcast, but Andrew is remembered chiefly often in our hymnody and in the scripture readings of being a witness for bringing his brother Peter and other places of bringing people to Christ. But in the collect, the emphasis is on discipleship, him being called as the first disciple. And as a disciple, you're called to sit and to hear and meditate and so learn. And the prayer, of course, is that we all sit and hear and meditate and so learn. And we do that in the divine service. And we do that through, also through church music. Luther was profoundly aware of the teaching power of music 
Think about how you learned your ABCs. You learned it with a little song. Uh, think about uh, how many baby boomers learned so much about things on Saturday morning cartoons with Schoolhouse Rock. Uh, it's the reason I wrote the catechism songs. I set the catechism to music. You can get that through CPH. So church music fills us with the Word of God. And so as I elaborate so much in, in my book, and I uh, appreciate you giving me a chance to, uh, to talk about church music for the care of souls here, this is a chief way in how the Lord fills us with himself. So as we enter into Advent, I just want to encourage all of us to sing not just our favorite Christmas carols and our favorite Advent songs, but whatever is chosen by your pastor, whatever the choir might be singing, but uh, whatever is chosen by your pastor or your cantor uh, to, to sing, regardless of your preference, be mindful of the people around you that they need to hear the hymns and they need they need your participation singing it as we uh, follow Paul's instruction. We don't get a lot of instruction in New Testament specifically about worship, but Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. And as we go into Advent, it is in this singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is a chief way in which uh, we receive the care of our souls his love, his peace, his joy, and his hope. So may those Advent blessings be with us all. When we come back, Tim Carey joins us. He had a hand in the creation of the world's largest stained glass window. He'll tell us that story next. Church music directors can find a new community at Prelude to Postlude, the CPH Music blog. Learn helpful tips for managing music ministry and involving members, and meet the composers of some of your favorite new pieces. Plus, find suggestions of music to use for special services, and preview some of our newest works with free samples you can use at your church. Visit us at preludetopostlude.org. When Christ came to earth, he did not come as a fully formed man. Rather, he took on flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He became a lowly embryo and thereby, in this act, made every child a gracious gift of God. No asterisks, no footnotes. To learn more about the blessing of children, pick up the December issue of The Lutheran Witness, cph.org witness or our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. In the spirit of Advent, we journey to the humble town of Bethlehem. Luke 2.1 reminds us that, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. As we await the birth of Christ, let's reflect on the simplicity of his arrival. From all of us at Lutheran Church Extension Fund, may this Advent season fill your heart with hope and anticipation. Memoria Press's award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press. Saving Western Civilization, one student at a time. Spiritual and Religious. You're listening to Issues Etc. Our school is committed to authentic Lutheranism, 
the entire Book of Concord, and indeed to authentic Lutheranism as it has continued to be confessed and practiced through the centuries, right up into our own time. Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Chairman of the Department of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We're committed then to biblical, confessional Christianity and Lutheranism and applying it to the world of today in as effective a way as we can. You can find out more about studying for the pastoral ministry at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, at ctsfw.edu, ctsfw.edu, or call 1-800-481-2155, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana.